0: Yes, Lord, today we give you thanks for all the blessings that we experience in this life have indeed come from above. You are a good God who gives us great gifts, and for that, Lord, we give you thanks and praise. God, we give you the honor and glory that is due your name, for you are the God who is the one to receive our praise, for you are worthy of it. Father, in this place we have come and we recognize your majesty. We acknowledge your beauty. We bow before your majesty, glory. And as we think about just who you are and think about how you have revealed yourself through scripture, we can't help but be humbled. For Lord, we recognize that you are the Holy One. And in light of your holiness, we see ourselves And what we find there is that we are unholy. Father, we have come to this place, having lived this past week, perhaps not as we ought to have. Lord, we confess to you in this place that we have sinned. There are ways in which we have chosen to live, chosen to think, and chosen to speak that belittle your glory that are a travesty to your honor for which we are humbled and embarrassed. God, we confess to you that we have not loved others as we ought to. Father, we confess to you this day that we have not served in the manner in which you would call us to serve. Father, we have done great deeds of darkness. We have sought to hide them from you and from each other we have neglected to honor you in all things and yet we've gathered in this place as sinful as we are confessing to you these sins we we acknowledge lord that as we just sung your faithfulness to us is great your mercies are new every morning and as we confess our sins to you you are indeed faithful to forgive and so, God, would you remind us of your mercy? Would you remind us of your grace? Would you remind us for the relentless pursuit of sinners like us that you have lavished upon us such grace, such love, that in all of our sin you were not ashamed to call us your own, but you bought us with the precious blood of your Son. And would you you would have us as your own. So, Father, help us to remember your grace. Help us to remember. Your love help us to reflect upon the forgiveness we have in jesus christ god help us to remember that our sin does not define us but your mercy and your grace that is what defines us and so father we thank you and we ask that as we come to your word now and we get to marvel in your majesty that you are our maker and creator and that you are our redeemer and sustainer we pray lord you'd be honored. Renew us, I pray. Rejuvenate our hearts, we pray. Revive us, we pray. And we'll give you the thanks for what you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Oh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. And uh, I, I trust that as you came in today, that uh, you were greeted by a whole host of people outside on the courtyard, depending on how early or how late you came Uh, You either had the opportunity to listen to some amazing testimonies of God's grace uh, in people's lives, or you came a little bit later, and at least you got to hear us sing on the plaza and uh, the doxology, and that was just a great time together. So, um, yeah, thank you for uh, being here for that. We had five people get baptized uh, already between the services and after. Yeah, that's a reason to celebrate. And after today's uh, this this service, the 10:30 service, we are going to baptize five more people. So ten in all. I'm good at math. And uh, so I want to encourage you to to plan to stay after the service to witness and to celebrate uh, the Lord's work in people's lives as they get baptized today. A couple other things I want to let you know about um, that would be important for you to know. Uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a federal uh, holiday. We are going to uh, be observing that, which means our building will be closed. So if you, for any reason, were coming by, uh, that's what you can expect is the building will be closed up and locked. Um, next week too, I want to let you know that uh, this is the 23rd and we're going to be starting a new series in the book of Hosea in the book of Hosea. It's an Old Testament book. Uh, some people know about it, but they only know uh, a thinly veiled amount about the book. And so we're going to spend some time studying it together as a church. We've produced a study guide that's available. And uh, it's for a suggested donation of $5. And uh, there's some good uh, study stuff in here, some questions that can help you think through um, the study together. And then after, uh, in the The email that we send out or the bulletin, you're going to see the sermon outlines and then there'll be some reflection questions there. And that will all contribute to to help us as a church to work through the book of Hosea together, um, just reveling in God's uh, relentless love for sinners like us. It it truly is breathtaking. So uh, it's going to be an exciting time. And with that, we want, we are excited to actually announce that at the 8.30 a.m. service, we are going to have kids ministry for walkers or for early childhood through four-year-olds. And as you know, we haven't been able to offer the 8.30 a.m. kids' ministry because we just flat out don't have enough volunteers and people to serve. And so the Lord has been faithful through prayers and through uh, making announcements and whatnot that uh, we've been provided for, and we can now open up some of these classrooms. So at 8.30, you have the the early childhood, so it's basically that wing that's over there uh, through the four-year-olds. We'll have that open for kids' ministry. Next Sunday too is a busy day. Uh, The twenty third is our annual business meeting. That's the time in which we uh, have opportunity as members to vote on the annual budget. We'll also get to vote, ratify, uh, elect our elders and deacons, and so that's an important uh, meeting to be at. If you're not a member of Golden Hills, we still invite you to come listen to what the Lord is doing through our church. We're very transparent about what's going on here, and so we would love for you to be a part of it. And you've heard me said this, heard me say this before. uh, If you are members. The expectation is we'll see you there. And so that's next Sunday at 2 o'clock. So mark your calendar. Uh, We'll be together for our annual business meeting where we get to do some of that and even more. Uh, We're going to be removing about 60-ish people or so from our membership for various reasons, uh, but we'll also be welcoming into membership about 60-ish people or so. Uh, So it's a really cool thing that we get to celebrate and witness together. So hope you can join us. And for others of you, can't wait to see you there. All right, Psalm 139 is where we're going to be looking at um, the scripture text today. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, which means all over the country there are churches which are praying about, preaching about, and talking about the sanctity of life. And what does that mean? Sanctity of life is simply that human life is valuable. Human life is valuable. And um, today we're going to look at that exact thing. But what I want to do is I want to ask and answer this question what is it that makes human life so valuable? What is it that makes human life so valuable? And what we'll see is that we're made in the image of God. God is the one who forms us and creates us, and God makes us for his purposes. And these stand as the reason, the rationale for why Human life is so valuable. So I invite you to open up your copy of God's word to Psalm 139. We're going to look in verses 1 through 18. And here is what David writes O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. And where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Ah, that's good. That's a bit of beautiful Hebrew poetry for us. And what we see in this is King David is going to help us to understand that we can know something true about our God as we come to know something true about ourselves. And through knowing something true about ourselves, we can therefore know God even better in knowing ourselves better. And by knowing God better, we know ourselves better. And by knowing ourselves better, we know God better. They are interdependent. And so what David's gonna do is introduce us to our God. He says, this is your God. And this is how God has interacted with us. This is how God made us. This is how God knows us. This is how we know God. And then he goes on to talk about the most intimate place in which the true knowledge of God about us, where that takes place and in the womb of a mother. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to work through this, verses 1 through 16, and we're going to see an introduction to our God, how he knows us, and he's ever-present everywhere. We're going to look at how some of these uh, truths that we learn are how they help us to apply. Let me say it differently. As we see this, these doctrines are going to hit us and there are going to be direct implications for our lives and there are going to be direct applications for our lives. And I don't want you to sleep on either the doctrine or the implication or the application. It's no use knowing true things if we're not going to actually live them out. And it's no sense, there's no sense in trying to apply something you don't know. And so, Lord willing, God will bring both. And so we will look at the doctrinal stuff, the implications, and then Lord willing, we will prayerfully consider application. So we begin in verses 1 through 6. This is your God, David writes. And what we learn about God is, starting in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. We learn about our God that he's a searching God. He's not an idle God who sits back and does nothing, as though he is disinterested, as though God is aloof, as God is just, you know, like, ah, whatever, I got other things on my mind to deal with. No, God is a searching God. And what he searches out is us, And what he searches out in us is knowledge of us. This God who is active and alive also takes a deep interest in us and knows us deeply. And as we see in verses 2 through 5, we see that God knows everything about us when it comes to our physical selves and our non-physical selves. Look at this in verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Physical. You discern my thoughts from afar. Non-physical. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, physical. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether, non-physical. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And what we see here is God knows everything about us when it comes to our physical lives, but also God knows everything about us when it comes to our non-physical lives. There is nothing about us as human beings that is outside of the knowledge of God. He knows how you use your hands. He knows how you use your eyes. He knows how and where you walk. He knows how your body functions. He knows what you do with your body. He understands how you use your brain, how you take care of your physical life. He knows all of that. And just in case we're thinking, okay, he may see it all, but yeah, you know, like there's some stuff about me he doesn't really know. But then we learn that even the thoughts... And even the words, before we even say them, God already knows them all or completely, which means there is no place for us to hide from God. He knows your ambitions. He knows your wants. He knows your will. He knows the way in which you think and what you think about and why you think it in the first place. It's all encompassing. These two realities—that God knows us physically and our non-physical beings—that He knows it completely, to the fullest extent. This reality can do one of two things for us: number one, scare us to death. We're like, "Oh, oh, for real? Oh no!" Or secondly, it can be a comfort. And the reason why it can scare us to death is maybe we only know God as our maker. We only know God as creator. We only know God as majestic. We only know God as holy. We only know God as the judge. We only know God for who he is in his transcendence. And when we think about his majesty, when we think about just how big God is and the fact that he knows all this stuff and, and we just think, oh my goodness, I'm done for if he literally knows all that stuff, he knows everything I've done and everything I wish I would have done or wouldn't have done, I'm in big trouble. Because I know that I'm not holy. And he knows I'm not holy. And therefore, where do I go? How do I hide? Where do I run? And yet at the same time, if we know that God knows everything there is to know about us, and we feel comforted by that, it is because we know God is not only our creator, but he is also our redeemer. That God has taken a particular interest in us and for our sake and for his glory sent his own son into the world. That by his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus would secure for all time a redemption. That these sinful people who know that they are unholy are called now to confess this unholiness and to take upon themselves by faith the holiness of Jesus which is granted to us so that we are no longer rejected, we are no longer cowering before the majesty of God, but instead we are invited into the presence of God with the blood of Jesus covering us so that God warmly welcomes us as his beloved children because he sees all our sin. He knows our need, and he has come to meet every one of them. I will have you for my own. Yes, Lord, but I've done so much, I know. And I've redeemed you and forgiven you for all of it. Now, when you think about God seeing you always everywhere, do you shudder? Do you cower in fear? Or do you tremble with joy? You still love me? (laughs) You know everything about me and you still love me? Because that's one of the greatest fears you and I have. If someone in this building, in this church, in our home, in our workplace actually knew us fully, we are scared to death that they would reject us. And that's why we hide. And that's why we edit our pictures on Instagram. And that's why we edit our lives to make sure everyone sees the best of us because we don't want to be really known. And yet God sees it all, unfiltered, unedited, and he wants you anyway. (laughs) Yes. Now the reason why God knows all this and the reason why we could uh, say that we cower in fear in God knowing us completely because he's our creator and maker or he is our redeemer and therefore we're comforted is because that's exactly what the scriptures teach us that God knows us, these two realities about us, because he is our maker. He knows us intimately. He knows how we're wired. But secondly, he knows us because he's also our redeemer. So we see this in Genesis 1, as Sarah read for us. God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. If you notice, there's a distinction between human beings and species, like plants and animals and whatnot. And we have this weird thing, it's, it's kind of, I can't believe it's real, but there are people in our culture today that uh, accuse us as Christians of speciesism, you heard of this? How dare you think that human beings are more important than animals? And I'm like, this is crazy. I don't know of any person who's ever arrested a cat because they ate a field mice, <laughs> have you? And yet I know of human beings who've been arrested because they have mistreated animals. (laughs) Doesn't that tell us that there's at least something different? And what we see in scripture is, yes, there is something different. Human beings are made in the image of God where other animals are not. And so God says he's created man in his own image, in the image of God, he's created them. Male and female, he created them. There is a distinction between humanity and other animals. They are not equal. But the dominion we're to have doesn't mean that we can extort the natural world, but instead we are given responsibility to steward and be custodians of the natural world. And we, distinct from the animals, are distinct because we're made in the image of God. And there's not one way in which we uh, image God better than the others. It's just that we are created in his image. So humanity, we see this here, is an engendered being, male and female, made in the image of God, and there's really nothing else um, that is said about why human beings are valuable other than this. And we go on, another reason why God knows us so intimately is not only because he made us in his image and he is our creator and and whatnot, it's also because God is our redeemer. Now, if you think about it, God was so, he created everything and everything fell because of sin, but he was so concerned for the redemption of his creation, for his glory, that he brought about a plan in which his one and only son would enter into time and space to secure for all time the redemption of not only sinners, but the sinful world itself. And how we went about doing this is amazing, that this word, this Greek word logos, which is kind of the mind of God, is it became flesh. And if you notice, God became a human being and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So not only does God know us because he's created us, but now we're starting to see that God knows us intimately because he's also become one of us. Now, why would God do that? We see in Hebrews 2 that the children, that is the children of Israel, the children of Adam more particularly, they share in flesh and blood. Like all of us share this in common that we are human beings, flesh and blood. And Jesus himself likewise partook of these same things. Now, why did he do that? It's so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We learn that sin has a consequence, and that consequence is death. And we see death, and we know of death, and we fear death. But that fear of death and also the reason why it exists in itself is enslaving. It changes the way we live. It changes how we make our decisions. It changes everything about us. We spend so much time on like face creams to make sure our face doesn't get wrinkly because we don't like the thought of getting old and dying. And so we have subscriptions to uh, Peloton and just all this stuff and we're just like I'm never getting old yes you are and you're gonna die and it's like ooh, let's not talk about that that's icky and that's what this text is saying is like look God is going to redeem you from this enslavement he's going to rescue from this lifelong fear of death And how he's done that is by becoming a human being who not only lived, but died and lived again. And in his living again, he puts to death, death. So you don't have to worry about death. Though you die, yet you should live. So he knows us because he became one of us. And he knows intricately what it's like to be a human being. He knows what it's like to walk, to sleep, to sleep to eat, to thirst. He knows what it's like to give hugs, handshakes. God knows what it's like to weep, to suffer, to be rejected, to be lonely, to be isolated, to be abused, to be lied about. So Jesus, on his part, he doesn't need to entrust himself to people because he knows all people. And he doesn't need anyone to bear witness about what it's like to be a human being because he himself knows what it is to be a human being. God knows. He knows us intimately. He knows everything about us. Because he's our creator, but more than that, because he's also our redeemer who has become a human being himself so that we can always come to God. And he's not embarrassed as we come. He's not shocked when we come. And there's nothing we can tell him for which he's not like, oh, really, that happens? get out of here. He knows. And we can have confidence to come to him. Not cower in fear, but come in confidence that if you come in faith, he will welcome you. This kind of knowledge, it says in verse 6, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. It's almost like this is mind-blowing if this is true. And it is. And then David goes on to talk about not just the, the knowledge of God, that he is omniscient. That means he knows everything, every potentiality, and he and just has all knowledge. But also we're going to see how God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at all times. And so... David writes this, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Like you know me so intimately, the thought is, well, I want to run away from God so he doesn't know me, but where are you going to go? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there's the place of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is ever-present at all times. His knowledge of us is complemented by this reality that he has an inescapable gaze towards us. He always knows. And if you're anything like me, um, you've tried in your life to get away with some stuff thinking that "Ah, no one will see me. I remember as a kid, I wasn't allowed to eat Oreos, but I thought in my mind, as long as nobody saw me, I mean you could always count Oreos at the end of the day and know what's what but I thought man if I ate them in the other room so I remember one time being in the linen closet just mowing down Oreos bro <laughs> And then I put them back on the shelf and my dad was like where'd all the Oreos go? Uh uh-huh. just black crust right here <laughs> You know what it's like to think to yourself I can get away with this no one'll see And yet we read in Jeremiah 23 where the people were accusing God of not being a God of everywhere. They thought that they could leave a particular location and God wouldn't be there and then they can send their brains out. And so God says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Well, you think I only live in California? Don't you know I live elsewhere? Or some people would reverse that God's only in Tennessee and not in California. (laughs) Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? What closet are you going to crawl into where God can't see you? Where'd you go? There is no peekaboo with God. He sees it all, always declares the Lord. He says this question, do I not fill heaven and earth? Where are you going to go? God's gaze is ever present. He's always there. And some people, let's go to verse 11 and 12 of 139. He says, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. In other words, oh, surely no one will find out about this. God won't know about this. I'll clear my internet history. Surely no one will know about this. I'll delete the text messages. Surely no one will find out about this. I'll just take the empty bottles and throw them in my neighbor's trash can. And on and on we go, trying to find ways to deceive and manipulate and hide. And yet what we see is if you think that darkness will cover you, you have to realize light is what God is. Verse 12: Even the darkness is not dark to God, the night as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There is nowhere to run, there is nowhere to hide. Does that freak you out? Or does that comfort you? Do you know God as Redeemer or merely as Creator? Here's what Job says for his eyes are on the ways of man. He sees all his steps There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves You can run but you cannot hide God exposes us all There is no place within us that will remain in darkness and hidden from God's knowledge and sight he will expose it all I remember as um, As you probably know, I I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, For half my life, I lived just pagan life. And um, I always felt this weird feeling that somebody was watching me. I don't know how to explain it. But there was many, many opportunities for sin of which I divulged and just delved into it and just lived. like. But I always felt this weird feeling of like just I might get caught. I don't know by whom, but I just felt this weird feeling. And it wasn't until later, after I became a Christian, I realized that that was the residual impression of being made in the image of God. God was haunting me with Himself. And then it was like, uh oh. So He knew all that? Oh, yeah, He did. And then something happened to me which uh, really was life changing for me, and that was I started to read the Bible. Um, as you probably remember, uh, I've told this story many times. If you haven't heard it before, and I can say it, and you won't be bored. Um, but I wasn't a Christian, I started a meeting uh, on Monday nights with a bunch of guys, we were studying theology and books together, we called it the meat locker because we wanted to get meat, solid food, not milk. And so we called it the meat locker, so lame. But anyways, <laughs> uh, we would also play board games at the end of our study and one of the board games we play was called Bible trivia. And what was interesting is whenever we played Bible trivia, there'd be eight or 10 guys and we'd break up into teams and I was always the last pick. Because I didn't know much about the Bible. I'd just been a Christian for a couple months, a few months, something like that. And so they would always pick me last. And I'm a competitive person. And so uh, sports is in my you know, DNA, so to speak. And so I was like, never again. I'm going number one. And so I decided for a period of time, I'm going to read the Bible as close as I possibly can. And I had a bunch of journals where I would write down like what kings followed what kings and what kingdom and how everything worked. And um, it, was, it was detailed. And so every day after work, I go to school, go to practice—football uh, practice in the fall, baseball practice in the spring. Then I would go uh, to work. I worked at Starbucks for a while, worked at uh, Best Buy for a while, and then I would go to Starbucks. And I would sit at a table, me and my friends. There's a kind of a bigger table, and we'd had our little Walkman CD players. Remember these? They're big, and you had to be delicate because if you like put it down too hard, it just skips. And you're like, no. And so we just put it down, put our big headphones on, we just read the Bible. And I'd be there until it closed, and because I worked there, I could stay later than that, and I read. So the next time we played Bible trivia, man, I was like, boom, boom, boom. People were like, what happened? I loved it. And sure enough, sooner or later, it was like, I got filled. I'm like, oh, we're going to lose now, and I loved it. But what was interesting is the more that I received those praises for reading the Bible And the more I started to read the read the Bible the more I started to feel uneasy about the praises Oh, no I'm using this book as a source of pride and arrogance Oh, no And I realized that in order to get rid of that icky feeling of conviction The best thing for me to do is stop reading this book And so there was a period of time where I was like, I'm not going to go there, because it just makes me feel so convicted. Many people say that about church. And that's for a reason, because the Bible teaches us that the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it's piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of to whom we must give an account. One reason I would put forward for you all to at least ponder and think about, one of the reasons why you don't read the Bible as much, as frequently, and as intently as you ought to is because you know if you get your nose in this book, God's going to get his nose in my business. I'm going to be exposed by this book. I'm going to be shown my weaknesses and my failures. I'm going to be shown my sin. I don't want that. And so we just close the book, slide it away. Brothers and sisters, we will one day be naked and fully exposed to the eyes of God. But don't be fooled. You're already naked and exposed before the eyes of God. There's no sense in waiting to confess your sin. There's no sense in waiting to divulge your failures and your weaknesses. God already knows them. Come to Him. Come to Him. He will welcome you. He already knows. And we go on and we see this, the most intimate of places where it seems the most hidden, the most mysterious, the the darkest place. The place which is Like I said, most secretive. God is now going to turn our attention to the womb. And David writes, for you formed my inward parts, building off the fact that God knows everything about us. God is everywhere present. He says, there's no place I can escape. I I was not even able to escape your gaze when I was in the womb. For you formed my inward parts, knitted me together in my mother's womb. You were there. You know me. You know how I work. You know what makes me tick. My frame, or some wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed from me, when as yet there was none of them. So even in the womb of a mother, God is active. God is knowing. God is present. It's as if God is in his workshop to masterfully craft each and every person. He's there doing his work. Now we know, um, as you look in this verse 16, that God sees my unformed substance, and you jump back to verse 13, God is the one forming So, there's an unformed substance, substance, and yet God is the one forming it. So, the Bible describes this whole process of development in the womb as something God is orchestrating, and yet, as you and I know, we have amassed a a great deal of biological knowledge about the process of human development We've learned a lot, a great deal about procreation and development and whatnot, and so sometimes we think, eh, that's just like fluffy language. It's not God, it's just the natural processes. And we have to ask ourselves the question, where did these natural processes come from? They haven't always been there, we know that. So where did they come from? You see, if they've always existed, then they could have never been brought into existence. And if they've been brought into existence, that means there was a time that they didn't exist. So let me put it philosophically this way. Natural laws had to exist in order to create them, but at the same time didn't exist in order for them to be created simultaneously. And that just doesn't work. So instead we have people like C.S. Lewis who says, actually the natural world is like a glove where God has knit it together and put it there, and then what God does is he slides his hand into the glove of nature, and he begins to give it animation and movement. (laughs) Oh, it's unbelievable. He's like, oh, that works for me. And so yes, we've amassed a great deal of knowledge about the biological procreation and human development. I don't use the word reproduction because we are not robots or machinery. And God is vitally involved, and so it's procreation, not reproduction. And so we have textbooks like The Developing Human, Clinically Oriented Embryology, where the textbook authors write this. Human development begins at fertilization when a male gamete, or sperm, unites with a female gamete, or oocyte, to form a single cell called a zygote. These highly specialized totipotent cells Mark the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. Or in Langman's embryology, written by T.W. Sadler, the development of a human begins with fertilization, a process by which the spermatozoon from the male and the oocyte from the female unite to give rise to a new organism, a zygote. And so, biologically speaking, the beginning of human life is at conception. And immediately following this conception is a process called development. And just to make sure we understand this, male, sperm, female, egg come together. It doesn't remain a fertilized egg. It becomes something completely different. It becomes a zygote, a single-celled organism which rapidly begins to multiply and will one day become an embryo and then a fetus, and then a child yet unborn, and then a born infant, and then a toddler, and then a kid, and then a teenager, then a young adult, then an adult, then an older adult who wants to be a kid again. (laughs) This development process is well known. In fact, it's almost undeniably true. There are some outliers that would deny it, but it's undeniably true. That human life, and what we mean by human life is this. If you were to, na- to take the DNA or genetic sequence of a zygote and you would track it through its developmental process of embryo and fetus and unborn child and child and toddler and da, 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 all the way down to their 98 years old, the sequencing would be identical. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It's the same exact species, the same exact organism. It's the same exact substance, even though it's experienced change over time, or what we call development. Now, there's a big debate for thousands of years about when an embryo or a fetus receives their soul, and do you have an answer? I certainly don't. The Bible doesn't give it to us. The closest we get is Ecclesiastes 11.5. You don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child. So you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In other words, there are mysteries about this for which it would be better for us to shut up and listen. To not speculate. Instead, to just go, I don't know. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And so that's where we're at with that. We're not exactly sure how all this works in timing, but we do know for certain that at no point from the time in which a zygote is made at conception until the person is dead, even hours after they're dead, same genome, same sequence, same DNA, same species, it's a human being. Now let me work some philosophy for you to drive this point home. If you noticed... In verse 16 the word substance is used your eyes saw my unformed substance and yet it is God in verse 13 who is forming that substance what I want to do is I'm gonna walk us through this philosophy to help us understand the difference between substance and properties okay this is super important substance and properties a substance thing like a human being is defined as this a substance thing means that this organism will change over time, but the change that it experiences does not alter what the organism is. Let me say it again. Whatever an organism is, if it's a substance thing, That organism does not change what it is even though it changes over time. Let me put it practically for you. Even though human beings change over time and develop, they do not become more or less human because of the change. The human nature of every human being remains constant, even though the human being may experience real change. Let me give you an example. You go and get a haircut. Let's say you got long, flowing locks. You just like, people are like, oh, wow. And you shave your head and you donate all your hair to Locks for Love. People will look at you, whoa, you look completely different. You've radically changed. Have you become less human with your haircut? And you better say no. (laughs) Let's think of it another way. You have full functioning with your limbs and whatnot. You get into a horrific car accident because people are driving crazy on Highway 4. And you get paralyzed from the waist down. You no longer have functional legs. Are you less human now? Let's say you are getting older and you got cataracts or you got an astigmatism like I do. It just messes you up and you can't see as well as you used to. Are you less human than you used to be? Or take my example. I got gray hair. I used to not have gray hair. It wasn't that long ago. And I didn't. Am I less human because I have gray hair? Or, as they say, gray hair is because of, you know, acquiring wisdom. Am I more human now? That I have gray hair if someone has dementia are they less human if someone has great IQ and intellect are they more human if a toddler learns how to speak properly does he become more human if a young child learns how to shoot do they become more human because they've developed that skill We recently got a puppy on Monday his name is Bentley. He's a cockapoo He's about eight weeks old I know and pray that Bentley will become a mature dog <laughs> But I also know that his maturation process will be according to his own kind I Fully expect that at no point during Bentley's life will he ever become an ostrich I know that Bentley possesses internally because of his nature and because of the way that he is he will mature according to his status as a male cockapoo I know that likewise by virtue of what a human being is from the time of conception through every stage of development we have an internal which is coded in us from DNA and genetics, the way God has made us, that we will grow and develop of our own. By contrast, there are property things in life. So that's a substance thing. A human being is a substance thing. A dog is a substance thing. But by contrast, there are things called property things, like a cell phone. A cell phone is the sum of its parts, If I can't call on my cell phone, it's now an iPod. (laughs) Or something else, right? Or a paperweight. Because this thing called a cell phone has particular properties. And these properties that it has, when they accumulate, they make it what it is. And if some things change to it, then it becomes no longer what it is. It loses its value it loses its essence so to speak now think about it if we think that human beings are mere property things then that means they are the sum total of their faculties or whatever things that they possess and if you think of a human being in terms of being a property thing then they are more or less value more or less valuable dependent on which properties they possess If you have this property, you have great value. If you have this property, you have great value. If you lack these things, you are lesser value. For instance, if you have dementia, we would say, you are less human because you don't have the properly functioning faculty of your mind. Or if you're really smart, you are really valuable and you are really more human as opposed to these knuckleheads you know, knuckle draggers and whatnot who don't know, I don't know, astrophysics or whatever. Or you can do anything else. Athletes, they're way more valuable because they're athletic. Really? Celebrities, they're way more valuable. Why? Because they're rich and famous. Really? So that means if you're not rich and famous, you are not valuable. If you're not an athlete, you're not valuable. Put simply, brothers and sisters, let me say this. You did not come from an embryo. You once were an embryo and a fetus and an unborn child. And you developed over time. But your acquisition of particular properties, like knowledge of American history or the ability to drive a golf ball, did not make you more or less human. You remain human throughout all your changes. And because you are human made in the image of God, you are inherently valuable, equally so to every other human being. Are you tracking with me, church? This is an amazing thought. So much so that you see verse 17 and 18, how precious to me are your thoughts, oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Verse 6, if you remember, your knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high. In other words, this is amazing. This makes me want to worship. That I'm made in God's image and I am inherently valuable and every other human being is equally valuable because God is our maker and even more valuable. God is our redeemer. this is amazing and what that means also is this brothers and sisters there are implications we can draw from what we've just talked about now I'm not going to give you direct application application many times I I get criticized for this in my preaching like there's no application I'm like yeah you're just not hearing good enough all right Application tends to be this idea that, hey, Phil, can you give us three things we can go do a spiritual homework and then we'll see you next week and get three more things or whatever. But oftentimes, most of the time, I can't give you spiritual homework because it would require me to have an intimate knowledge of your life to the greatest minutia, what you do hour to hour and with whom. And I can't answer that. But what I can do is say, is this true? Yes. All right. If this is true, these are the implications. Now, as you hear the implications, you bear the responsibility of prayerfully considering the applications. If this is true, okay, and it is, okay, and this is what it means, all right, but how does, it, how does that work out in my particular life, applicationally? And that is you to figure out and for you to prayerfully consider. And it's not my fault if you don't do that. You tracking with me? Okay, you didn't like that, did you? All right. Sometimes I just have to speak like direct. Um, So here are some implications, okay? I have three right now. There's four in your notes, but I don't have enough time. So three implications. First one is a moral and ethical implication, Morality is, uh, tends to be understood as what we personally do. Ethics is understood as like the standard that exists. So moral is what I personally do. Ethics is kind of what the standard is that's out there. And so here's a moral and ethical implication. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It's talking about murder it's talking about justice eye for an eye kind of stuff and so the standard is as we see later in the Ten Commandments you shouldn't murder that's the standard and the morality is bro don't be murdering <laughs> and now what's the rationale why why is it both immoral and unethical to murder Because it says, God made man in his own image. That's the rationale. Every human being has been created by God in his image for his purposes and cannot be unjustifiably killed because of that. That's moral and ethical implication. Now, Jesus, man, he ratcheted it up. You've heard it said, Do not commit murder, but I say to you, anyone who has anger in his heart towards a brother is liable for judgment. Anyone who insults another will be brought to the council. In other words, Jesus goes on and he goes, look, man, every human being is made in the image of God. And not only can you not kill them, but you cannot murder them in your heart or hate them. Nor can you slander them Or insult them because they're made in the image of God. Wow. There's also a social and ethical implication. What I mean by social is the way in which human beings interact with one another. And what I mean by ethical is kind of a standard that's there. And this one is a social and economic justice. And I know I just said social justice, and some of you are going to fly off the handle. I knew he's a closet liberal. <laughs> Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses a poor man, and that Hebrew word there, poor, can, yes, it refers to materially poor, that is, you don't have any money, but the poor man can often describe one who is relationally impoverished, a widow, an orphan. Or a sojourner whoever oppresses these kinds of vulnerable people insults and we would expect to read that poor person but it doesn't say that whoever oppresses this impoverished person either materially or relationally insults his maker Which implies that these poor people, as poor as they may be, widows, orphans, sojourners, or whatever, they are made by God in his image. And therefore, we must treat them accordingly. And by contrast, he who is generous to the needy honors, who's the him referring to? God the maker. So if we want to insult God, then treat unjustly those who are vulnerable in our society. If you want to honor God, then be generous towards the vulnerable in our society. Proverbs 22, the rich and the poor meet together. Those who have and those who have not. They meet together. And look at this, the Lord is the maker of them all. So in this social setting setting where there are haves and have-nots, the teaching is that God is the maker of them all. Whether you have much or have nothing, you are made in the image of God, which tells us that there ought not to be inequity, partiality, or injustice in the social standing because we equally stand before God, ought to be treated equally, and be given equal opportunity before God. This isn't equity of outcome. Some people talk about that as a means of social justice. Everyone should be equal in their outcome. That's not what the Bible teaches. Equal in opportunity. The rich and the poor should have equal opportunity, but the outcome remains what it is. Some will be rich, some will be poor for one reason or another. Thirdly, there's a bioethical implication. Something that means there's a standard there according to biology, and it would be unethical given our biological knowledge to do certain things. From the moment of conception, we've already seen that human life begins and according to its nature as a human being, it develops according to its kind under the internal ordering of its substance. At no point after conception is the nature of human being established. And what I just said is important. At no point after conception is the nature of a human being established. One does not become a human being at birth, at teenage years, at adulthood, when they go and become a fetus. Biologically speaking, the kind of thing that exists at conception is a human being. Now, when it comes to the bioethics of elective abortion, there is only one issue that needs to be addressed. Imagine this for a second. I got this from Scott Klusendorf. He's an uh, apologist. He said this. Imagine you're sitting at a kitchen watching dishes, and your child comes in and says, Dad, can I kill this? Your answer it depends entirely on the answer to the next question, which is, well, what is it that you're talking about? Because if you just say yes or no, you like, well, I don't want to disappoint my child. Yeah, go ahead and kill it. Yes! And they go and hack up their sister. <laughs> Uh-oh. Or the neighbor's dog. Can I kill it? Yeah, go for it. Just And you're like, oh my gosh. You need to ask the question, what is it that we're killing? And so the one answer, elective abortion, and kind of the debates about it, really boils down to one question only. What? Is it that is being killed biologically speaking embryology would teach us that it is a human being may I kill this human being unjustifiably no and some people will object well yeah yeah I mean think about it this thing it's not technically a human being why not well because it doesn't have certain faculties like what well it can't speak yet oh So if we encounter a human being who can't speak, they're mute, we can just kill them? No, that's different. Why is that different? Why can you kill some human beings who can't speak and you can't others? Well, no, no, we we can kill them because if you think about it, like if this child is born to this impoverished woman, then it'll be economically disadvantageous for this woman to keep this child. They can't afford it Oh, So if a human being is costly, financially speaking, then you have the right to kill it. (laughs) All you high school seniors, you better listen up. You're about to go off to college, and it's going to cost mom and dad some money. It's expensive. You better better sleep with one eye open. It may not be financially advantageous for them to send you off to college, and they're going to kill you. Why can we make light of that? Because we find it absurd that we would kill someone because they, are, they would economically disadvantage, disadvantage us. And on and on I can go. And some would say, yeah, but if you think about it, like a human being is one who has whatever, self-conscious, consciousness, and you're like, oh, oh really? So someone in a coma, we can just kill them man, cool, wasting electricity on these people. Just pull the plug, be done. What? If we think of human beings as particularly um, property things, that is a human being is not a human until they can think and speak and be independent and be an earner. Then what we're saying is if you have or don't have these properties, then you have or don't have value. And then it's a matter of, well, who decides what properties are valuable and which ones aren't? If you go to the South in the 1800s, all the way through the Jim Crow and even today, many people will see that if you have black skin, that's not a property that is good. You're not valuable. But if we are not property things, we are substance things, then regardless of your skin color, you have inherent worth. And value and some will say well it's 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 not the property you know not necessarily the property it's a particular kind of property like if you think about it the, you know this is a very small just kind of clump of cells it's a human being in development and you're saying because it's small you can kill it so Shaq is tall and I'm not so he can kill me I stinks Well, no, no, it's the level of development, you know. That's what gives them the right to life. Oh, so if someone is really smart and someone's less smart, then the smart person can kill the less smart person. Hmm. Or if you're older, perhaps, you can just kill younger people. They get in the way anyways. Or maybe it's just because they're in the womb, you know, So you're saying that just because of where you are, you can be killed? You can be in the wrong place at the wrong time? That's that's interesting. So if you're in Antioch, somebody decides, yeah, let's just kill people in Antioch. All right. This is crazy. Or dependency. Well, you know, this thing in the mother's womb is dependent on its mom. It needs to be independent. Well, let's go back to the teenagers then. These teenagers are so dependent on their parents let's just knock them off then you kill two birds with one stone finances go up headaches go down can we kill them you see if humans have value only because of some acquired property like skin color or consciousness and not because of the virtue of the kind of being that they are then it follows that since these acquired properties come in varying degrees, then basic human rights also come in varying degrees. I'm not comfortable with that, are you? That some people have more of a right to life than others by virtue of whatever property they have for one reason or another acquired? Humans differ in a myriad of ways. They're different in talent, they're different in development, they're different in intellect. And yet every single human being is equal in their fundamental dignity because they are made in the image of God and they are a part of the human species from conception beyond death. Humans are valuable because they are human, not because of any acquired property. I don't know what applications this may have for you. You may know of a widow that lives on your street, that because she is relationally impoverished, you need to go befriend her. I don't know. There may be somebody at work, somebody at school, high school students and middle school students, who has been mistreated, bullied. Because of some property they possess, long hair, short hair, skinny, fat, unathletic, athletic. And it may be God saying to you by way of application, this person is made in my image and they are valuable. Defend them, protect them. Watch out for the vulnerable. I don't know what the particular application will be, but if these three implications are true, and I think they are, We have a moral and ethical implication. That we have a social ethical implication. That there's a bioethical implication. That we need to prayerfully consider, okay, Lord, how do we apply this? How do I apply this? And brothers and sisters, let's not be those kinds of people who excuse our disobedience by pointing to other people's disobedience. Naked and exposed, we all are. We will have to give an account. So brothers and sisters, let's prayerfully consider in light of us being made in the image of God and every other human being made in the image of God, inherent with unalienable rights, dignified and valuable, how might we love them, serve them, defend them, Advocate for them. And I'm going to close in prayer because we've got to go baptize some folks. And we're going to go baptize five people who because of Jesus have come to know God as not merely their creator and maker but also their redeemer. That they have been made in the image of God but because of Christ and through faith they have been remade in the image of Christ. And as I pray today, I'm going to pray that we would consider application for these implications and these doctrinal truths. So pray with me. Father, we ask, in light of what we just have seen in Psalm 139, that we are wonderfully, fearfully made, that you saw our unformed substance, because we are indeed substance things, and you formed us, Knitting us together. Lord, we were not hidden from your sight. You knew us and you continue to know us. God, would you help us to walk faithfully with you as we attempt as best we can to live out these implications. Father, we have to confess this day that there are times we could probably even think of right now where we have failed in this way. God, that we have mistreated fellow human beings by virtue of some faculty or property that they had or didn't have. God, we confess to you this day that we have treated people worse than they deserve. We have not been loving, kind, patient, considerate. We have probably been angry, slandering, hateful. And so, God, we confess to you this day that we have done these things in greater atrocities still. Some of us have been incredibly racist in thinking that certain people with certain skin colors are less valuable. And others are more valuable. People with certain economics are more or less valuable. And God, is not lost on us. And I imagine that there are some women who have chosen to get an abortion who feel as though because of this decision, they are unlovable. And I pray that they would confess this sin as well. And God, you would remind us in all of our hating and all of our striving and all of our mistreatment and unjust treatment of other people, God, you remind us as we confess our sins to you, you are faithful, you will forgive. You have forgiven. And because of your great mercy towards us, and because of Jesus Christ crucified and risen on our behalf, we are cleansed and we are made new. And we can be free of this guilt and shame that we all have. And also, we have the Holy Spirit to empower us to live, love, and serve to your glory as we ought to. God, apart from you, we would be overcome with our own sin in this place. But because we have you, and more specifically because of Christ, God, we've been set free. We're redeemed. Help us to live, Lord, redeemed people, confessing to you not only our sin, but our trust that you forgive. God, as we close our service in singing about how all creatures of our God and King will praise you, we ask that you would help in our hearts to be like David in Psalm 139, that we would think of these things as wonderful knowledge, and that we would burst forth in praise. So God, meet with us now and do for us all that we need, and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.